Amen. Well done, children. Well done. Uh, as we begin this morning, let's just go to the Lord in prayer before we turn to our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the reminders again of Christ's resurrection, that he died, was buried, and rose again, as the scriptures tell us. And we rejoice in that. Help us, Father, as we look at your word to be helped in understanding some of the purposes that were involved in his death, burial, and resurrection. Help us to understand and be encouraged and be uh, faithful in sharing this message with others. But uh, I pray, Father, if there's some that uh, don't fully understand it, you'd, you'd help us to understand it. And I pray that you give us insight into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you know, today in our society is uh, very similar to Christmas time where a lot of the world has traditions and maybe many of us have traditions as well where uh, we do things like give candy or have Easter egg hunts and things like that. Um, so it's a day in which there's a lot of people celebrating, but there can also be a lot of people not really understanding the true significance of this day. Today we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but actually the scriptures tell us every Sunday really is Resurrection Sunday and we celebrate his resurrection. But today in our country there's a special focus upon this. Um, and many, though they may even be celebrating it, don't often understand what it was really about or what it means or what it accomplished. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is significant for many reasons, uh, but a key reason that we're going to look at today will be because it showed that the payment that Christ made for sins was completed and made in full, and that payment was accepted by God the Father. Now, we've been studying in the book of 2 Corinthians and if you were here last week, we were in chapter 5. We just started to get into chapter 5 as we are focusing on eternal retirement. Uh, this week, since it's actually going to be my last week, I thought instead of jumping into uh, one of the four Gospels and talking just about the resurrection, I thought we would focus at the end of chapter 5. So in a sense, kind of finishing this chapter where it talks not specifically about the resurrection, but a part of what was involved in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and what was accomplished by his death. So technically, we're not focusing on the resurrection itself, but it's important to understand there really is an inseparable link between the death and burial of Christ along with the resurrection of Christ. So... It's all included in what Christ did as his work to accomplish salvation. And specifically, we're going to be looking today at the subject of reconciliation, how the death of Christ accomplishes reconciliation and also righteous, the righteousness of God being credited to us. So we're going to look at the end of chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 18 to 21 and uh, talk there about reconciliation. So it says in verse 18, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now before we analyze this further, I wanted to turn to another passage of scripture that is very similar to this and I think helps complement this passage and help us put together some understanding about what is found here. If you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 5, we'll read there verses uh, 8 through 11, and then we'll turn back and focus on 2 Corinthians. But Romans 5, verses 8 through 11 is on the same theme, and is a complementary passage here that I wanted to draw your attention to this morning. Romans 5, starting with verse 8, says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we see this morning as we focus on uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21, uh, and seeing this complimentary passage in Romans 5, 8, we see that the theme here is reconciliation, being reconciled with God. I want you to see, first of all, as we look at verse 18, that God is the author of reconciliation. God is the author of reconciliation. Verse 18 says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So as a preliminary uh, thing, I just wanted to couple, uh, cover a couple ideas that I think are key to understand as we talk about this topic. Number one, as I say author here, and speaking of God, I mean that God is the creator, or the initiator, or founder, or the one accomplishing reconciliation. He is the one achieving it. He is the one making it possible. He is the one behind it. And we need to understand that as we think about reconciliation. But I think we also need to cover what does reconciliation mean? If we were to look at the, the Greek word behind this translation of reconciliation, the word means change. It means change. Now, in the context of, of this passage and other uses in the New Testament, it's talking about a change in relationships. So what's assumed there is there's conflict in those relationships, and there's a change that brings about a healing or repair in the relationships. That's the idea of reconciliation. There are broken relationships and something happens to change that so that there is a restored relationship. Now, we understand from many passages in Scripture 
that mankind, because of sin, is alienated from God. We are alienated from God, and our sin actually makes us, as we read in Romans 5.10, the enemy of God. So, I know when we, uh, it may be hard to understand this if you're not really familiar with the, uh, the teaching of Scripture about our sinfulness, but when a young baby is brought into the world, we, we look at that baby and we understand it's a very precious and, it, and it's the beginning of a new life. But we need to be careful not to misunderstand that people being brought into this world are sinners. We don't get right with God. We don't become restored in that relationship with God until there is repentance and a turning to Christ. We are all born sinners. I have five different children that we've had. Every one of them has learned, has been able to be deceptive or uh, dishonest at times, or mean to one of their siblings. But you know what? That is not what my wife and I, and I have taught our children. We've tried very hard to teach them, instruct them in the ways that they should go. But why, why is it they know how to do these things, that they behave this way? Because they're sinners. We begin life separated from God because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Everyone brought into this world are sinners. They're sinful. There is alienation from God. There is separation. And because of our sin, we're actually the enemies of God. So when we talk about reconciliation, this is a need for all mankind. Everyone needs to be reconciled to God because we are all hostile to God because of our sin. Reconciliation, you might say another definition, is the removal of that hostility and the restoration of peace and harmony and favor between God and man. And we're told, according to the scriptures, this is done by blood atonement. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no remission. There needs to be a payment for that. And therefore, those who are converted to Christ go from being aliens and enemies of God to becoming members of God's family. That's reconciliation. And that is an extreme change, is it not? But that's what we're talking about. Reconciliation is a need because of the sin uh, in this world, our sinful natures that we're born with. There needs to be a restoration, a, a transformation that takes place so that relationship can be repaired. And God is the one who provides the way for it to happen. We see here in 18 that God is the provider ultimately of all things. Notice in verse 18, he says, Now all these things or all things are from God. Verse 18, now Paul is specifically, I believe, making a reference to what he said in verse 17. In verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. That, what Paul is talking about in verse 17, is the conversion experience. He's saying, if you've repented of your sin and you've come to trust in Christ, you're a new creation. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been given eternal life. You have the Spirit of God. You are a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. And Paul is pointing out this is from God. 
God provides this. God provides the way of reconciliation. He is the provider of the reconciliation that we need. It says in verse 18 again that all these things are from God who reconciles. So here he is giving a very similar challenge to what we've already seen in James. So thinking about these things in application for you. Like I said, next Sunday is going to be an evangelistically focused message. So um, I wanted to really challenge you to think about these things. You need to make sure you keep yourselves in the love of God. You need to persevere in the love of God. You need to abide in God's love. You need to obey the commandment to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. You need to be committed to personally walking with him and living for him. You are in a state in which you don't have a pastor. That is a state at times that can be a challenge for churches because it becomes a a way for people to drift away, to, to walk away. But I urge you to continue to be faithful, to keep yourselves in the love of God, to continue to faithfully live for him and serve him with your lives. Whether it's going to be two weeks or two months or two years before he provides you with that next under-shepherd, you need to keep yourselves in the love of God. You, as an individual, need to walk with God. So he gives us here the command to love, keep ourselves in the love of God, but he also then goes on and the next three phrases to explain how we do that. So how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Perhaps you're saying, all right, all right, I get it, I'm ready, what do I do? Well, he tells us, he gives us three phrases. What do you need to do? First one is in verse 20. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Well, what does that mean? What is the most holy faith? Well, I think Colossians 2.7 may help us understand. Um, if you turn with me to Colossians 2.7, we'll be back here in June in just a moment. But if you look at Colossians 2.7, I think this is a use similar to his term, the faith, or most holy faith, that will help us understand what he's referring to. So is he basically saying you just need to keep on believing? Or what is he saying? He, I think he helps. We're helped by Colossians 2.7. It says, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, overflowing with gratitude. And I guess the key phrase to help us put this together is, just as you were instructed. So the faith here isn't just your believing. The faith is the content of what you're believing. So often it's used in the epistles especially where the apostles talk about handing on the faith. And and what they're talking about is the truth that we believe. So it's associated with our own belief, but the idea is the basis of our belief. It's the word of God. So building yourselves up in the word of God. That's what he's talking about. 
How do we build ourselves up in it? Well, it means we've got to be hearing the word of God. What does Romans 10, 17 tell us? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So to continue to build ourselves up means to continue to be in the scriptures. So I know it's a Sunday afternoon. For many of you, it's the, the third message you're hearing today. So I know I'm speaking to the faithful crowd. But the challenge, I think, as we, as we look at this, is we need to remember the urgent need we all have to hear the word of God. We need this time of hearing the word of God because it reminds us of what we need to believe and it encourages us to continue to trust in the Lord and we are strengthened by hearing the preaching of the word of God. But it also, we should understand this means individually. We individually need to be building ourselves up. Again, personal responsibility here. We need to be in the word individually. What are some activities that might do that? Bible reading, Bible study, memorization, meditation, hearing preaching, admonition between believers. We may not think about that, but that's an important part of, as well of being built up in our faith. Or the faith is being admonished by other believers. We are to provoke one another to love and good works. And in order to do that, we need to continue to be meeting together so that we're able to challenge and encourage one another with the word. So we need to continue to be in the word both personally and corporately. Otherwise, we're not going to grow. We're not going to continue to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Um, we understand the basic principle here. Even our little children's songs help reinforce the principle, right? You heard the song. Forget your Bible, neglect to pray, and you'll shrink, 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 right? Read your Bible and pray every day and you'll grow 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 basic concept we get it right that's what we need to do we need to be in the word as another illustration of failing to get the proper nutrition i i actually had a coworker one time who in college basically lived on ramen noodles now if you're at all familiar with ramen noodles they're very inexpensive right in fact i i had seen on one of these Facebook memes one time, it showed a crash of a ramen noodle truck, like just the truck destroyed and ramen noodles are everywhere. And it says, total damage to the company, $12. <laughs> right. Ramen noodles are very inexpensive. Well, I had a coworker who while in college, apparently was on a really, really tight budget. And so he basically ate ramen noodles all the time. He came down with a disease. Do you know what he got? Scurvy. He came down with scurvy, which is normally what pirates would get on ships because they didn't have any oranges, vitamin C, right? This man living on ramen noodles alone in modern America got scurvy because he didn't have the proper nutrition. Well, that's what we're talking about here in Jude is to remain in the love of God. It is essential that we have the word of God. 
We need it for our daily nutrition. We must continue to build ourselves up in the Word of God. But we must remember that it is not. The, the picture of New Testament Christianity is never Lone Ranger Christianity. It's never just an individual go, goes and does whatever they want on their own, seeking the Lord. It's just them and the Lord. That is not biblical Christianity. Who did Jesus Christ die for? The church, right? We, as a body, need to help one another. We need to build up one another in the word. It is not just an individual assignment. We do need to have personal responsibility, but we also have corporate responsibility. We need to continue to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Secondly, the second way he describes that we keep ourselves in the love of God is by praying in the Spirit. Look at verse 20 where he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. So it only makes sense to us, does it not, that constant communication with God, which is what prayer is, is essential to keeping ourselves in the love of God. If we're going to love God, we need to spend time with him. If, if we're going to keep ourselves in his love, we need to spend time with him. We need to have frequent contact. We need to have faithful communication. I'm going to pick on uh, Brother Bob here. If you were in Sunday school last week, do you remember Bob talked about a communication problem? Do you remember that? So Bob talked about a communication where there was a communication with, with Kim where um, Kim could tell something was on Bob's mind and, and so he wasn't at his normal talkative self with her, right? Now they talked about it and, they, and he explained and they, they, they worked it out, right? That's part of a normal, healthy relationship. What if Bob refused to talk about it? What would have happened if Bob just, eh, nothing, or just acted like it was no big deal and, and just continued not to talk? It would, it, it would harm the relationship, right? It's normal in relationships. We have to communicate. That's what prayer is. We're communicating with God. So in order to keep ourselves in the love of God, we must be talking with God. And it is also an expression of our dependence on him. When we don't pray, it's often because we don't think we need his help. Or we can handle it. My, I don't know how many of you know this. Hopefully this doesn't come as a shock. But um, Joanne and I were married in 2006. I actually was married before. My first wife died in 2004. But I remember, and the reason I mention that is because my first wife talked about, her, her dad was a pastor, and she talked about how growing up, often she would get frustrated with her dad because as a little girl, she needed his help with something, and she could tell that he saw that she needed help, but he wouldn't help her. And what she learned was her dad didn't want to step in and help until she learned to ask for help. And it was part of how he was trying to teach her, number one, to be humble, but also to learn about prayer. In the same way, we sometimes go about the struggles of our life all frustrated, trying to work things out, it's not working out, and we simply need to turn to God. Ask him. We need to keep ourselves in the love of God by praying. 
We need to be in communication with God. We need to ask him when we need him, which is, frankly, all the time. We just think often we don't, but we do. And I think the idea of praying in the spirit, in this sense, is praying in agreement with the will of God. Um, being in alignment with the Spirit of God about the things which you're praying for. So it's not just a selfishly guided prayer list just to get all these great and glorious things for yourself, but it's prayer under the guidance and direction of the Spirit so that God's will is accomplished. That's real prayer. And that should be a part of our daily, moment-by-moment existence. We need to keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the Spirit. So not only do we need to be in the Word and in prayer, we also need to be, thirdly, looking for the Spirit's or the Savior's return. Verse 21. It ends very similar to what we did this morning. It says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. There should be an eager anticipation looking forward to the coming of our Lord and Savior. Now, I have to tell you, there was a little, there's a little tension point with this verse. Do you notice what word is used to translate this and explain our waiting for the Lord? It says the word here, anxiously, waiting anxiously. Now, there's been this uh, tension in our household that that word anxious is often misused in the English language. There's two words that are very similar. One of them is eager, and one of them is anxious. Do you, do you understand the difference? Anxious, according to one member of our household, often has with it a negative connotation of being nervous or worried, like there's something wrong or you're concerned a bad thing's going to happen, right? That's anxious, and I believe that's correct. Eager has the idea that we're looking forward to something we can't wait for, but many times people say, like they're going on a trip, you know, they're taking a trip down south, somewhere warm, I am so anxious for my trip. Well, Probably the better word is eager. You're eager, right? You're looking forward to it. You're excited about it. It's not that you're worried about it. Well, so the, 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 the problem then here, we, we really think it's the translators that uh, translated with the, with the wrong word. I know that can sound bad, but I looked at the Greek, and I do not see a word that means anxious here. I think they just added that along with the waiting. There is a waiting, but I think the better explanation of that is eager. We are looking forward to the Lord's coming. It is a thing that we greatly anticipate with joy. We're excited about it. We can't wait for it to get here. Imagine telling young children that they're going to have a trip to go to Florida. A few, few uh, year or two ago, I, my... my uh, my mom and sister planned a trip to go down to Florida because my sister had a medical conference down there and they decided to take our three young children with them and we told our children about that coming trip. Do you know what it was like in our house for a week or two before that trip? They were so excited. They couldn't wait to go on the trip. They were looking forward to Disney World and all those rides and candy and pop everywhere, right? And all these glorious things. 
They were so excited. Well, but that's the idea. That should be our attitude about the coming of the Savior. We're eagerly waiting for it. And he says what's going to happen is it's going to be mercy. It's an interesting word choice here. We are waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, as a heavenly father, knows that we're going through hard times. He knows it's rough. He knows that life is hard. And his coming is going to be merciful to his children to rescue us from all this hardship and difficulty and to clothe us with our new uh, bodies and to be with him forever in heaven. It'll be his mercy, and we greatly look forward to it, don't we? That should be how we're building ourselves up, uh, is by, or keeping ourselves in the love of God, I'm sorry, by eagerly waiting for the Savior's return. We should be fixed on the future reward and eternal residence that we look forward to as we discussed this morning. So, my challenge to you, no matter what happens in the next few months or years of your personal life or as your life as a church body, you need to focus on keeping yourself in the love of God. You are personally responsible for yourself. Yes, it is a responsibility of a shepherd to have oversight for your souls. But you as an individual are responsible to persevere in the love of God as well. And you do that, as we saw today in Jude, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith, by being in the word of God, building yourself up with the word of God, learning the scriptures, obeying the scriptures, admonishing one another in the scriptures, regularly being part of the preaching of God's word and submitting to that and responding to it, in faith and obedience, so that you will be building yourself up. Additionally, we need to be active in praying in the Spirit. We cannot be in the love of God if we are not consistently in communication with God. And we need to constantly set our eyes upon our Savior, focus upon Him and His return. We had great turmoil in the last presidential election. There was a lot of tension, a lot of difficulty. There's still a lot of tension. There's certainly going to be a lot in the next one. The, the next president isn't the answer to our problems. Our Savior returning is the answer to our problems. That's what we need to be looking forward to. We need to pray about our government leaders, for sure, don't get me wrong. But we need to fix our eyes upon the return of our Savior and live for him and eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the great and precious promises we have in your word. Father, it's, it's a great privilege to be in your love, to be loved by you. We thank you for giving your son what an incredible demonstration of your love. Help us, Father, to faithfully be in your word, to be in constant communication with you. And help us, Father, certainly a theme today. Help us to take our eyes off this present world and long for our eternal home and live with our eternal home in mind. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. Pray for the Lord to come, to be expecting him to come soon. It could be at any time. We need to be eagerly focused upon the home to come, and we also should focus upon the faithful rewarder. Let's look at verse 5. It says in verse 5, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. So we have here revealed the planner, the Lord. He's the one who has prepared us for this. He is the one who's behind all this. He is the designer. He is the planner. He is the one orchestrating all these things. It is our loving Heavenly Father. We should remember that we can be confident about all these things because our God is faithful. What he has promised, he will do. And we also see the word mentioned here, preparations, the one who has prepared us for this. The, the word is actually working for this outcome. It's the same word used in verse 17 where it talks about producing for us the eternal weight of glory. God is at work, as we talked about, renewing us day by day. All of it is preparation, preparation to enjoy this future uh, reward that's coming. He's working on us now to prepare us for it. And like Philippians 1.6, are you familiar with that? He is going to finish the job. It says in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. It's a promise. If he started the work in you, he's going to finish the work in you. So therefore we have great confidence because God is faithful and he's at work in us and also because we're told of the promise given to us through the Spirit. It says, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. I know we've talked about this before and it's a familiar concept, but Reminds you again, when you go through the process of buying a house, at least the way it works in our society, the, the, the way you do it is you put money down on the house. And the idea of that is it locks that house for you and that if you pull out of the deal, you lose that money. It's called earnest money. It is money you put down guaranteeing that you're going to buy that house and if not, you're going to lose that money to the owner of the house because by locking it in like that, what you're doing is you're also preventing the seller from potentially making other, getting other purchases. So there's a cost to them. So the money is used to secure the house and it's a guarantee of your intent to buy it. That's what the Spirit of God is in us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God. It's God's guarantee that you're His. And that he is going to complete the deal. What a glorious thing, or glorious confidence we have in our God. He is faithful. He is going to complete it. So why should we not be focused on our eternal home, our eternal rewards, and spending eternity with God? So you may in this life decide that you want to move to Traverse City or Bismarck, or Alaska, or Florida for your earthly retirement. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Uh, there are other choices, of course, 
that you'd have to be factoring in how are you going to serve the Lord, where are you going to be going to church. There are obviously priorities that you should factor in other than just taking life easy. Uh, and there are scriptural warnings about just taking things easy without having made uh, preparations for your eternal home. But you understand the point. We're just illustrating that we need to focus upon our eternal reward. Our life will be hard and difficult at times. There are times where life will not seem fair. There are times where you may be tempted to question and ask, why, God, are you allowing this in my life? But in the grand scheme, we need to remind ourselves that we have, if you're a child of God, you have an eternal reward coming. And that should be our focus. We have an eternal home that we long for. And we have a faithful God who will do it so we can count on him to do it. And we can also count on him to help us day by day to get ready for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are incredibly gracious. Father, we, we understand some things about what's coming and what we understand is glorious and wonderful and incredibly rich. You, you the God of the universe, are going to share so many wonderful things with us that we'll be able to richly enjoy forever. We don't deserve that because we've sinned against you. We've done wrong, and yet you've provided for our forgiveness in, in eternal life through Christ. Thank you, God, for your greatness and your goodness. And Father, please help us, though, because so often we are caught up with the here and now, which is temporary, and it's going to go away. Ultimately, it's going to burn up. Help us to long for your rewards, your eternal provision for us in heaven, in eternity. Help us to be motivated on a daily basis by those things instead of the here and now. We, we do understand you've given us things to richly enjoy in this life, but help us not to be attached to them and let them replace the priorities we should have and the focus we should have. Help us, Father, not to be overcome with discouragement. Help us to be willing to endure hardship, knowing it's working in us a far better, more glorious reward in the future. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here it says, my wife says I only have two faults. One is I don't listen, and I can't remember the other one, right? Um... Now, in, in my household, it is my, it is my wife who is the good listener in reality, but I'm going to tell you a funny aspect of our relationship, though, because my wife is an extremely hard worker, and when we get to the end of the day, she gets really tired. So there are some times when we're talking, and, and you know, you, you understand how it is, you have children, uh, you wait to the end of the day many times to talk about stuff. So we wait till the end of the day many times, and um, sometimes when I'm talking, she's quite worn out. And it's not out of any disrespect, but she just falls asleep. 
even sometimes while we're engaged in a conversation. Um, now, that's not frustrating because I understand uh, she's just really tired. But um, isn't it frustrating when people don't listen? You know, there are examples of, uh, you know, men who maybe are engaged in sports activities or things on the TV, and so their attention span's not very good. 